Jesus is alive. He is risen. And I warmed you up and you just sat there. Let's try it again. He is risen. And when a church gets excited about that, we're in a good place, okay? And when a church isn't excited about it, I'm scared, okay? God is good, and I love how he does things. And um, this morning, when we first started singing, Oh, Happy Day, I couldn't help but think, yeah, it is a happy day. Now, I know for some of us, you might have walked in this morning, um, never been to this church before. Uh, Maybe it's been a while. Maybe you come every Sunday, but maybe you came in today feeling a little hopeless, a little upset, a little frustrated, a little heartbroken, a little angry, whatever it may be. And when we sang, Oh, Happy Day, it was hard for you to sing with a smile, right? Can you do me a favor just for a moment before we dig into God's word here? Can you just look at the person next to you and say, happy? Just look at them and say, happy. Okay, now some of you didn't do it because you knew. You knew that if you looked at a person you said happy, you would smile. And you're fighting it. Don't fight it. I don't know how you can uh, not sing that song and at least throw somewhat of a smile on your face. This is one of the most joyful days recorded in Scripture. And it's crucial to the foundation of every Christian belief what we celebrate today, what we're talking about today in God's Word. Because here's the thing. Our God is not dead. He is alive. He is risen, and we celebrate that today. It was just a few months ago. I know it's hard to believe. It still feels a little winterish outside, but it was just a few months ago where we celebrated the birth of Jesus Christ, his coming to this planet. And it was a joyous thing. We get so excited about Christmas, right? It is a time of of love, joy, peace, and hope, and we celebrate that. But we know this. The baby in the manger didn't stay a baby. Jesus grew up. And as he grew up, he did amazing things. He taught with authority. He healed with power. Those he met, he changed their lives forever. He revealed himself to be the Son of God. He was adored by most. Matter of fact, that adoration came to this culmination of a triumphant entry into Jerusalem. We celebrated last week, Palm Sunday. When the crowds threw these palm branches down and their cloaks down, their robes down. And they said, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the highest. And it seemed so exciting what was going on in the life of Jesus. But then soon after this, just days, if not hours, a friend, a disciple of Jesus, by the name of Judas, betrayed Jesus. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, when his disciples gathered to pray, guards came and they arrested Jesus. His disciples, first they fought. Some of them fought. Some of them ran. Eventually, they all scattered. And Jesus was bound up. And he's taken before a series of illegal trials where he was unjustly handled. Matter of fact, I'll throw up on the screen here, put up there on the screen, the six trials that he went through, the different people he went, first to Annas, a powerful ex-high priest. It was a phony trial. Basically, Jesus was falsely accused. He was slapped across the face, ridiculed. And from there, he was taken to Caiaphas, who was the ruling high priest at the time. They tried to gather evidence so they could take it to the high council. And during this time, it included false testimonies, 
spitting in the face of Jesus, mocking him, beating him with fists, slapping him, and so forth. They took him then to the high council, the Sanhedrin. It was a religious trial, basically to condemn Jesus to death. If they could condemn him to death, then they would take to the next step. The next step was Pilate. Pilate was the Roman authority. A death sentence by the Romans had to come through Pilate. Jesus remained silent in that questioning. Pilate decided this, I don't want to deal with Jesus. Um, Let somebody else take this. Jesus was born in the providence of, of Herod, so I'm going to send him off to Herod, to his territory. So Herod was a ruler of Galilee, so it was a, so sort of a courtesy act, also a passing of Pilate. And basically, Jesus is mocked and made fun of again in front of Herod and taken back to Pilate. But before Pilate says anything, his wife has a dream warning Pilate not to condemn this man. And Pilate gets a little nervous and says, well, you know what? It's by tradition we free somebody. Who would you like to be freed? Hoping they would say Jesus. Instead, it was Barabbas, a murderer, and they freed Barabbas. Last effort was made to not condemn this innocent man, but it didn't work. So Pilate had him flogged. Whips with lead tips as well as broken pottery into it that just basically shredded the body. He was given a crown of thorns. He was given a purple robe. He again was slapped, beaten, condemned to death, and carried the cross. Jesus was brutally beaten, mocked, spit upon, shredded by the harsh whips of the Roman soldiers. He was left for dead and had to carry his cross to Golgotha. Crucified, mocked once again, he went through the most extreme pain anyone could ever imagine. We have no clue what he went through. Tremendous, painful experience. Yet he did it for us. From birth to death was for you and me. Remember his mission. Jesus came to seek and save those who are lost. That's us. Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. To Mary and the disciples those who loved and followed Jesus, in that moment, that's all they knew. That's all they knew. Now, you've come here today with a foreknowledge of understanding of what the rest of the story is. Today's Christian, we have the rest of the story. We have the Easter story, the resurrection. We have the victory. We know that it was on the cross that our redemption was purchased with the precious blood of Christ. We know that it was at the cross Our enemy, sin and death, was defeated. We know that at the tomb, the empty grave, hope was discovered. We we have all that. But before there was a sense of victory, before there was joy, and before there was hope, there was a feeling of hopelessness. Hopelessness. It's not exactly a great word. It would be a great word to delete from our vocabulary, wouldn't it be? If we could rewind history, arrive back in Jerusalem, let's say just hours after he's been put up on the cross, and we see him take his last breath and say his last words, or maybe we see him being taken down off the cross and being wrapped up and being taken away to be buried. If we were to land right there, right then, not knowing what was going to happen next, we would discover that Jesus was going to be buried along with the hearts of his followers. 
How did each of them feel? How did Mary feel? How did the disciples feel? They ran, they hid, they cried. They locked themselves behind closed doors, fearing for their lives. They thought the same thing that happened to Jesus will probably happen to us. Jesus was mocked, insulted, beaten, bruised, tortured, finally murdered before their eyes. We see it on TV and we're thinking, oh, not much of it. We're like, oh, I can't believe this. That's horrible. But to have it happen in front of your own eyes. The one they placed their hope in was gone. Buried. Think about this. They left their jobs. They left their home. They left left their family. To follow Jesus. And now they have nothing. Everything they believed in seemed to be gone. They didn't know what to do. Because they were now hopeless. After all that time, now what? (laughs) Now what? You know, I was thinking about this this past week. I thought, I I pictured my mom sort of in this scene, like many other widows in this church, who were married to their spouse for years. And I think about this, that all my parents did, they did together. They traveled together. They ate together. They went to church together. They shopped together. I don't know if my dad liked it, but they did. Everything they did, they did together. And when dad passed away, they were separated. They'd never been separated from each other before. 60 plus years of marriage, never separated. For the first time, they're apart. They're his mom now alone. And I have a feeling she was hopeless at that time. That's the only thing I can imagine to help me understand what Mary and Peter and James and John, how they were feeling. That's the only thing I can come close to maybe understanding. Hopeless is a sad word. It's, it's when a doctor comes in and shares with you about that medical condition that there's no cure and you feel hopeless. It's when you get that note, that text, that your spouse says, I'm out of here. It's hopeless. It's when your business dream takes a turn you didn't see coming and you lose your job, you lose your business, or some dream that you had of that pursuit is now changed. It's not what you thought it was going to be. Hopeless. You read the divorce papers, you stand in front of the casket, you feel hopeless. Church, I don't want to take you there this morning because it's Easter It's Resurrection Sunday, but unless we understand the darkness of hopelessness, you won't understand the joy and the hope of a resurrection. If you've experienced a feeling of hopelessness, you know how Mary Magdalene felt when she went to the tomb. This morning, you might be in here this morning right now feeling that sense of hopelessness because of something in your life. And I don't know what it is, but it's it's bothering you this morning. I've got good news for you. Hold on got good news for you. Turn in your Bibles with me, please, to John chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. John chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Somebody will bring one to you. John chapter 20, verses 1 to 2. Fourth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Starting in verse 1, John chapter 20. Let's read. 
Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the tomb had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and she said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. We can read that really like nonchalant and very stoic and like, they took the body out of the tomb, we don't know where they put him. But if you put yourself in her place, the one she loved and followed, she went to find the body to, to finish the embalming process, and it's gone. She doesn't have the rest of the story like us. She was there between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning. She traveled alone, still aching from the loss of the one she loved and admired. And she had been saved from a life of anguish and torture. Matter of fact, in Mark 16, 9, let me read this to you. It says, After Jesus rose from the dead early on Sunday morning, the first person who saw him was Mary Magdalene, the woman whom he had cast out seven demons from. You see, Mary at one time was possessed by seven demons. She was considered insane and torn apart. And if you're possessed by demons, you're probably scratching and crawling, uh, uh, clawing away at your face and cutting yourself. You're alienated. You're alone. Nobody's going to be around you. You're dangerous. Jesus came to her and found her and healed her and removed those demons. She was forever indebted to him. She found hope in Jesus. And she loved him, and she followed him. And she went and did not find his body, and she was hurt even more. She arrives at that tomb where the stone was rolled away, and she discovers the emptiness. She isn't happy. We're happy because we know what happened. She's not happy because she doesn't know yet what has happened. We know Jesus is alive. She only knows the tomb is empty. To her, somebody stole the body. You know, it's it's one thing that Jesus is dead, but it's another thing that you would desecrate the grave and steal a body. Well, Mary returns to her disciples. She reports that the body's missing. Two of the disciples run off to the tomb. They wanted to see, what is she really saying true, or is she crazy again? What's going on? They run to the tomb to discover that the body is missing. And what do they think now? Is their hope lacking as well? They find the empty tomb. Probably downcast. They just go home, it says. John 20.10 tells us they just went back home. Church, here's the good news. Here's the good news. We have a hope that doesn't die. Let me say that again. We have a hope that doesn't die. The story doesn't end there. You see, Jesus then appeared to Mary and the other women, to his mother, to the disciples, to two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, to over 500 more people. Jesus arose from the dead. He conquered the grave. He conquered death. He conquered sin. He took hopelessness and he revived it. Jesus gave hope to the hopeless. To Peter, who denied Jesus, he gave hope. To Mary, who thought she lost her son, hope. To the soldiers who beat and mocked Jesus, he gave them hope. To the thief on the cross, who tried to defend him from the other thief, he found hope. To us who sit in this room today, we find hope that Jesus is alive. 
That's resurrection gives us hope. It reminds us that there's promise for today and tomorrow. See, if Jesus didn't raise up from the dead, our confidence and faith in God is gone. It's weak. It's non-existent. There's a scripture in 1 Corinthians. You've already heard part of it this morning. I want to read more of it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to start in verse 3. You heard this. I pass on to you what was most important, what's been passed on to me. This is Paul speaking. He says, Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture says. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture says. He was seen by Peter and then by 12. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Verse 7. Then he was seen by James and later by the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I saw him too. For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. Paul goes on to say in verse 12, But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless. Our faith is useless. Do you hear what Paul's saying? If Jesus didn't come from the dead, rise up from the dead, then neither are we. What hope do we have? Why are we even preaching? Why are we even meeting here this morning if Jesus isn't alive? If Jesus is dead, close up the doors. Or maybe we'll just get together and have pizza every now and then and have meals together and sing songs. But it would mean nothing if not for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is alive. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of the greatest harvest of all who died. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 and 19. Now, I shared this scripture with you last week when we were talking about Palm Sunday. I want to come back to it because you need to hear the rest of it. I focus on part of it, not all of it. As Jesus is going into Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside privately and he shared them what was going to happen. He said, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed into the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. They will sentence him to die. He's telling them this. Hey, you know, we're going to Jerusalem now. They're going to arrest me. They're going to sentence me to die. Then he goes on to say this. Then they will hand him over to Romans to be mocked, not the Sanhedrin, not the religious leaders, not to some kind of robbers or thieves, but to the Romans to be mocked, flogged with a whip and crucified. That all happened, right? But on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. Jesus said he would be arrested, and he was. He said he would be put on trial, and he was. He said he would be given to the Romans. He was. Flogged, mocked, beaten. Yes, yes, all that happened. He said he would be crucified, and he was. He said on the third day he would raise from the dead, and he did. Why share this? Let me continue. On the screen. Matthew 26, Mark 14, John 13, John 14, 16, and 17. Multiple scriptures, just a handful. That's all I could fit on that one slide. See, in the final hours before Jesus is arrested, this is the final hours before he's even arrested, Jesus is having conversation with his disciples. 
And in that conversation, he says, hey, I'm going to be arrested. Hey, I'm not going to be with you much longer. Hey, I'm going to go away, but I'll return. I'm going to die, but I'll resurrect from the dead. I'm going to be betrayed. All this was said in Matthew 26, Mark 14, John 13, 14, 16, and 17. All hours before he, all this actually happened. So that might be hard for you to understand. What I'm trying to say is this. If I were to stand up here this morning and say, hey, tonight about 7 o'clock, and then later on this evening, this is what's going to happen. And I start listing off a dozen things that are going to happen. And about 7 o'clock tonight, all of a sudden, all these things start happening. You'd be going, oh, how did Rex know? You'd be amazed. You'd be saying, can we have church Monday? Right? We want to know more. See, only Jesus can do this. Only Jesus can do this. And Jesus did it. This is going to happen to me. This is going to happen to me. This is going to happen to me. He said it, and it happened. Now, what he said happened, happened. He tells the truth. Why do I bring this up? Because if Jesus promises something, it's going to happen. If he says it's true, it's true. Why is that important? He told us he would die. He told us he would be buried. He told us he'd come back to life. Did, 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 right? But what about the other promises? He promises you and I that he will be with you. He is. He did promise that. And he holds that promise. He also promised all of us that he would forgive our sins. He holds that promise to be true. He also promised you and I that he would help us carry our burdens. He promised that. He does. It is true. He says he's going to return a second time. He's promised that. I believe it will be true. Everything that he promises is true. So you see, when we think of the resurrection, we see what it does. It gives us hope because what he said happened. Everything he's promised is true. So no matter what you're going through today that has sparked a hopelessness within you, he says, I've got hope for that because my words are true. See, a promise of a dead man in a grave doesn't carry much weight, does it? Because they're still dead. But the promise of a man who came back from the dead is strong. Gives life to our hopelessness. Because he is alive, all that he promises is alive and true as well. His resurrection makes our resurrection possible. Those who you have lost makes their resurrection possible because of Jesus Christ. That hope of seeing that loved one of yours someday will happen. You have that hope. John 16, 20 says this. I tell you the truth. You'll weep and you'll mourn over what's going to happen to me. But the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will suddenly turn to wonderful joy. I need to read that again. I tell you the truth. You'll weep and mourn over what's going to happen to me, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will suddenly turn to wonderful joy. Hopeless to hope is what Jesus was saying. Listen, I'm telling you, this was, okay, so when did Jesus tell them this? It could have been when he was at the Last Supper or on his walk to the Garden of Gethsemane, somewhere in there. So hours before he was arrested, he said, listen, you're going to grieve. You're going to mourn. But suddenly, it's going to turn to joy. 
What is he talking about? You're going to see me die, but you're going to see me come back to life. You're going to have joy. You're going to have hope. In John 20, 18, Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I've seen the Lord. Once she finally saw the resurrected Savior, she went back to them and said, I've seen him. It was just like the shepherds when they first saw baby Jesus. They went out to the city and said, we've seen the Savior. The Messiah has been born. They're excited with the good news, right? And now the disciples, once they've seen the resurrected Savior, the rebirth, right? Now they're back out there telling people, we've seen the risen Lord. Colossians 1, 13 to 14 says this, For Jesus has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. See, we have a king who reigns. And I know it's hard for us to grasp and difficult to understand because we live in a time when we elect our leaders. We choose our leaders. Jesus is our king. The image of God and creator Authority over all things, hold all things together. Peace was made through his blood, and the grave could not hold him. Easter gives us hope. And full of hope, we have these promises that we are saved, that we're free from sin. And thanks to the resurrection of power of Jesus Christ, that power now resides in us. Galatians 2, starting in verse 20. It says this, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. I don't treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if I, keeping the law, could make me right with God, then there's no need for Christ to die. Paul says, it's not I who'm living, it's Christ who lives in me. It's his resurrected power that lives in me. I can't do this on my own. John 16, 7, Jesus promised to the Holy Spirit and to his disciples and to us, he says, hey, I'm sending my advocate, my spirit to be with you. I'm leaving, but my spirit will always be with you. He knew this. Better than Jesus walking with me part of the time, his spirit was with me all the time. We've been delivered from darkness, church. We've been transferred to the kingdom of God. Redeemed and forgiven. John writes in his gospel. Listen carefully to this. He writes this in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, But those that these are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is all written for us. Why? So that you will believe. But the word that believe is used here in the Greek doesn't mean just, oh, I understand the concept and I agree with it. This word believe means I understand the concept, I agree with it, and I'm acting on it. Difference between a lot of Christians today, who call themselves Christians, is there's a lot of people who understand the concept, and I agree with all that. I'm a Christian. Here's the drawing line right here. I don't just agree and believe all that. I'm acting on it. You'll know I'm a Christian by my love. You'll know I'm a Christian by my actions. That's what John is saying here. So how do we apply this truth to our lives today? Church, we celebrate Easter, the Resurrection Sunday, because we now have hope and the power, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ living in us. We have all that. That's what Easter is about. How do we apply this? Well, let me say this. Due to my position as a pastor 
and as the leader of a nonprofit organization, I'm not allowed to post my opinions on political issues, gun control, marches, all that kind of stuff on social media from the pulpit. Maybe some of you have wondered, you know, I know Rex has Facebook or social media, but he never really chimes in about his opinion on these things. I can't. It's the first time I do, I could lose my license and my opportunity to pastor and also be a part of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. You just, you just can't. It's part of a nonprofit. It's part of the, uh, the, all the stuff that we have in front of us. I can't even do that from the pulpit. As soon as I turn this into a political post, our church loses its status as a church. So I want you to understand, maybe that's why you've never heard me say something about that, and that's okay, because opinion can be misunderstood. So, understanding truth, allow me to say this. As a believer of Jesus Christ, I want to be known, and I want you to be known, not for what we oppose or stand against, but what we believe in and what we stand for. Instead of marching against depression and suicide, which are horrible things, how about we help those who are alone? Instead of marching maybe against violence, how about we stand up and show love and act in love? And instead of standing against racial tension, maybe we start making new friends from every tribe and every nation. I think it's very easy for people to hold up a sign, and I'm not saying what if any of you are doing that is wrong. I think it's easy to hold up a sign, this is what I'm against. How about we throw down the signs and stand up for what we believe in and show love and show forgiveness and show grace and show mercy. We can do that. You know why? Because we have the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in us. We can boldly go and say this in truth and love. I've often shared with coaches and teams, a lot of people I work with, even my own sons, the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat. And I've probably shared this with you before. I'm sure I have. Years ago, when uh, my son came home from a practice in sports and he was mad, I was like, what's wrong? Oh, the guys at practice are goofing around. They're not taking it serious. I was like, oh, well, are you a thermometer or a thermostat? He's like, all right, motivational dad, what does that mean? Okay. I was like, what does a thermometer do? What does a thermostat do? Thermometer tells us the temperature of the room. Thermostat sets the temperature of the room. I said, exactly. You can be a thermometer and just go along with what everybody else is doing at practice, or you can be the thermostat and set the temperature for how practice should be. It's your choice. You can reflect it or you can change it. God's given you the ability and the power and the spirit to do it, so do it, Right? Now, I thought that was a great illustration. I learned it a couple years ago. But then I discovered something. You know where that thermometer, thermostat story came from? It came from a letter written in prison. Let me read that letter. I found this letter. It was a letter written in prison many years ago. Okay? In deep disappointment, I have wept over the laxity of the church. But be assured that my tears have been tears of love. There can be no deep disappointment for where there is no deep, not deep love. Yes, I love the church. I love her sacred walls. How could I do otherwise? I am in the rather unique position of being the son, the grandson, and the great-grandson of preachers. Yes, I see the church as the body of Christ. But oh, how we have blemished and scarred that body through social neglect 
in fear of being nonconformist. There was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that period when the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed in. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer, but recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinions. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. When the early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace, outside agitators. But they went on with the conviction that they were, the church, a colony of heaven, and they had to obey God rather than man. They were small number, but big in commitment. They were God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. They brought to an end ancient evils, such as child-killing and gladiator contests. I hope this letter finds you in strong faith. I also hope that circumstances will soon make it possible for me to meet each of you, not as an integrationist or a civil rights leader, but as a fellow clergyman and a Christian brother. Let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and a deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities. And, and if not too distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all their scintillating beauty. Yours for the cause of peace and brotherhood, signed Martin Luther King, Jr. I wasn't sure why I was going to read that letter until so I came across that thermometer thermostat. And it was a letter he wrote in prison. A letter about the church. And he wrote it to eight other pastors and bishops who were concerned about his situation at that moment. They didn't agree with why Martin Luther King was in the position he was. And maybe he should have done, done nothing. But he was there because he chose to stand. He believed in God's work in the church. And he believed that the people of the church have a life of hope and resurrection power and should act on it. So let's be known for what we believe in. We are a people of hope and love. We have the resurrection power of Christ in us. He is alive. And he is alive in us. Every day, we as a church can choose to engage in that. We can choose to provide an eternal impact on others. Every week, we have the choice to choose to do something good instead of doing something or doing nothing. Every day, we can choose to engage in something that will make a difference in the life of another person. We, we have the choice to, to love. We have the choice to show hope, to use kind words, to seek peace in turbulent times, to find forgiveness, to show forgiveness to the person that we don't get along with, to walk up to them and reconcile a relationship, to show grace. Every day, thanks to the hope and the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have the ability to show Jesus to the world. The question is, will we? I pray the answer is yes, starting today. Church, would you please stand? Worship team, would you please come forward? Church, I want, to, I want to close with this. And listen carefully. Because of the hope and the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, I want to be known for a true believer of Jesus 
who loves, who acts in love. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Listen carefully. Gates are defensive measures. In other words, we're called to play offense. Faithfulness isn't holding down the fort until Jesus returns. Faithfulness isn't just showing up at church on Sunday, once a week, or once a year, or once when I feel like it. Faithfulness is taking back enemy territory by shining light in dark places. Faith is saying, I'm a part of the church. I have the resurrected hope and power in me, and I will act on that to show light into dark places, because that's what Jesus did, and I'm his follower. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are an awesome God, and I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have to gather here to worship you. I thank you, Lord, for your words of hope and truth, because it's God, what you promised came true. Everything you said was promised came true. For those of us who are in here right now and might be feeling a little hopeless, you've given us hope. If we will just stop and admit that we need you to take away that hopelessness and admit that we need your hope, your power, your love in us. So God, for those of us who are striving and wishing we had that hope, all it takes right now is just a simple prayer and asking you to give us that hope. Probably one of the worst things we feel hopeless against is sometimes the sins we commit. We feel like we can't stop. But the victory at the cross and the tomb gave victory over sin and death. And you've given us the ability to live a righteous life. And that righteous life isn't just about not doing bad things, but it's about doing the right things. Help us, God, to have the power and the love to reach out to our neighbors, to forgive those that need to be forgiven, to help those who seem helpless, to those who are alone and are giving up on life. Help us to find them and to show them that they're not alone. To those that are violent, help us to show peace. To those who have been treated in an unequal way, help us to stand beside them. God, we thank you for what you've given us through the resurrection. Help us now to live it out with your hope and your power. We love you, Lord. We want to sing to you, Lord. In thy precious name we pray. Amen.